You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Ever noticed the Pahuta Kawa tree is in flower and the one next to it is doing absolutely nothing? What on earth is going on? Pahuta Kawa's flowering all over the place at the moment. We'll find out why this happens and why sometimes you get a branch which is variegated and the other is all perfectly normal. <coughs> oh, pardon me. Oh, great start. Okay. Uh, have you noticed, we're delving into the world of human statistics with Research Director of Ipsos, Jonathan Dodd. Have you noticed this with a Pahuta Kawa in your backyard or anything? Well, unfortunately, because I live inland in the Rotorua, we don't have many Pahuta Kawas. Oh, all right. <laughs> it's all about you. <laughs> Okay, um, I'm sure many people will be absolutely fascinated to find out the answer to this thing. Anyway. I am wondering. It's probably something to do with sex. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Uh, We're having a look at polling from around the world and this week to do with the entrepreneurial spirit, where it's biggest and where it's least. This is very interesting. Jonathan. It is. I mean, the first challenge is just writing entrepreneurialism and spelling it correctly. Yeah, yeah, true. And it means to get over that. Yeah, and the, yeah. that famous myth that um, George Bush said, the French don't even have a word for entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. I don't think he actually said it. It's too good to be true. It's Well, yeah. Um, but yeah, survey of 18,000 people. We've just done 24 countries into entrepreneurialism and um, some really interesting results. And um, as you know, sometimes the, we don't have New Zealand data for these surveys, but we do like to see New Zealand as a nation of get-up-and-go entrepreneurs that are always out there doing interesting stuff. So we thought, right, we'd better be in on this particular project and uh, see how New Zealand scores. And, yeah, not surprisingly, New Zealand does do pretty well, and there's some quite interesting results in here. So um, we did a whole lot of look look reviews, all sorts of research into what makes an entrepreneur, came up with a whole lot of key items, you know, the key attributes that entrepreneurs love, you know, being creative and future-focused and like to take calculated risks and all these things. And so we're able to ask these people about the degree to which they believe these things um, describe them um, and we are able to put together a bit of an index and sort of work out how entrepreneurial people were in the different countries. Mm. And it was interesting when you're looking at the countries, um, I thought it was particularly interesting that the Japanese were right down the bottom. That, that is so... Uh, well, it kind of meshes with the stereotype in some ways that um, they're very happy well, to, to work rather than lead. Well, after the war, they were the epitome of entrepreneurialism. Weren't they, they just? Really, yeah. Really, they were fantastic. So now yeah. they're all sitting there, and we know that their economy hasn't really done anything meaningful for 20 years. You've got this huge chunk of non-entrepreneurial people. And at the other end, we've got all the Mexicans. that They are leading the way on entrepreneurialism. And uh, when you think about Mexico, who, who's actually a bit of an entrepreneurial powerhouse, mm. Um, they're actually doing some really interesting stuff. And with the U.S. riding your doorstep, you want to make every dollar that you can. Yep. That was quite interesting. And there's also and, so much more to gain uh, that, oh, that yeah. a risk is so much, is, is well worth it. Yep. And, um, and I know people always talk about Mexican immigrants getting to the States and everything. Well, the reason why people do that, whether legally or illegally, is because they want to make a better life and do something and take a risk hmm. to, to better themselves. And so, you, can, you know, there's an argument that economic immigrants or refugees are often the most entrepreneurial. And, uh, they might be getting away from one thing, but they're taking a risk to achieve something else. 
But anyway, um, yes, so when we're looking at those countries, and it was interesting, you start with Mexico, India, Saudi Arabia, China, South Africa, and admittedly a lot of our sampling in those countries is going to be skewed towards the people who are online and a little more um, financially um, and educationally stronger. I'll get on to that bit later on. But when you're looking at the, the European countries or as with the Western countries like you know, the United States, Canada, Australia, France, Germany, all those sort of Western countries, New Zealand's number one. Wow. Yep. So we're just put just ahead of the United States really, um, on what we call like the entrepreneurial spirit index. So 32% of the New Zealanders that were surveyed were right up there in terms of entrepreneurialism. Quite a bit higher than Australia, 24%. You know, the South Koreans at 10%. So it's interesting, even with like South Korea, they, they've got so many people that even though we sit there and look at Samsung and the amazing stuff they do, yeah. that's only a, a very small proportion that just makes heavy waves. Mm. Whereas in New Zealand, we like to go off and start our own business and then we just get the beach and the batch and the BMW and the boat and sit there and do nothing else. Yeah. And <laughs> we Great, were, Great Britain's n- almost at the bottom with only uh, eight, 18%. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, pretty poor there, national shopkeepers. Ah. Um, and when you do ask them and look at, you know, the key, the types of attributes most strongly associated with these things, yeah, so New Zealand, for example, right up there having a strong work ethic, um, where's Great Britain looking at that? Yeah, 68%. So, yeah, so it's that strong work ethic, which is why I think when you go to London, mm. you can find companies that promote themselves as being staffed by Kiwis because we work harder. Mm, yeah. Yep. Well, all right. Sorry? Yep. Are you there? Yeah, yeah, sure am. Knock yourself um, out. Go for it. You're on. <laughs> and what I mentioned before there about looking at those countries which were scoring higher than us, but we did have to make the note methodologically that they were going to be the more actual ones, sort of connected people in those countries. Yeah. That's the interesting thing when you look at it and go, well, are younger people more entrepreneurial as a, as a men, as a woman? And really the main thing that makes you more entrepreneurial is having more wealth and greater education. Right, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. You, you probably know know how to go about setting up own business and you've got the money to fall back on if things turn to you. Yeah. And this, this is how people perceive themselves, is it, Jonathan? It is, but, you yeah. know, we're not saying just how you, you know, we're saying to what degree do you agree, disagree with all these things, yeah. So, um, okay. Yeah. Well, it could be that we're, uh, a lot of people are just lying about it and saying that we're really um, entrepreneurial when we just well, like to be, but are we? Well, this was about individual people, and, and you're right because people like to believe that they are more competitive, or they are more flexible, and they're well connected, and these things are all positive, positive attributes. But again, it's like, well, if everybody's going to sort of lie or overstate what they like and assume that they're all overstating to the same degree, we're still up there. So yeah, yeah you're right. Um, and it's just interesting looking at that relativism. Yeah. Okay. Now, in, yeah. Bus- in business, my God, Saudi Arabia, entrepreneurial experience, uh, th- they come top, 58% in business. Yeah. yeah. And that's when we're particularly when we're asking these sorts of people about um, if you'd like to, I'm not sure which stat you're actually looking at there. There were a few questions we asked about whether you've started your own business or you'd like to start your own business. So... Um, yeah, I'm not sure which state you're looking at there. But yeah, I'm not, entrepreneurial experience, business, entrepreneurial aspirations, yeah. business. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, 58% said that started one or more businesses themselves. Yeah, that's a lot. It is a lot. 30% of New Zealanders have said that. Yeah. 
And, um, and you're going right down to those countries like France and Belgium and those places with terrible um, bureaucracies we hear about where it's really, really low. Mm. So, yeah, Saudi Arabia right up there, and again, they've got more money and maybe it's more lucrative to go and do that kind of a thing. And, yeah, in case. and we're probably, just lo- we're probably just looking at 50% of their population too. Yeah, and, and bear in mind that, you know, when you're looking at Saudi Arabia and what's been happening, they've been going through such financially strong times that when things are going gangbusters, it's a lot easier to say, well, bugger this, I'm going to leave the corporate life and set up my own business because it's hard to fail. Yeah. Um, in the state of the Mexico and those places. Yeah, having a hard time keeping up with technological change. This is an interesting <laughs> stat. Well, I was reading this morning about how um, New Zealanders have been very slow to pick up on these smart speakers, you know, like the Amazon Echo and things like that. There's an article I saw in the press saying uh, New Zealanders aren't coming up with these things, which is interesting because New Zealanders are usually known to be very quick technological innovators. You know, we're the ones that do take it on board. Um, but, yeah, we were the third most likely to say, yeah, it's changing so quickly I'm having a hard time keeping up. Yeah, we're just behind India and Saudi Arabia there yeah. again. Yeah. And, and Japan, uh, Japan, just b- b- practically the same as us. That's strange. Well, maybe it's because so many people around us are taking on the new technology that mm. there's always going to be a group of people going, holy cow. So maybe it's a bit of a, probably a bit of a, um, a uh, push me, pull you thing because the more technology that the average person is picking up the, and, and expected to pick up, the more likely people are to be out going, well, I'm sort of struggling a bit with this. Yeah, and yeah. the uh, countries that had the least trouble keeping up with technological change, Germany, France, Great Britain, hello, hello yeah. Europe. Well, but the thing is, maybe the technological change is quite slow because that's what we always hear about oh, right, from yeah, these right. countries. Like, if you've got slow change, you're going to be less likely to say that you're having trouble. Yep. So it's going to be probably a, an issue to do with the degree of change as well as your ability to handle it. Um, and, I mean, Great Britain's going through enough change as it is. They probably don't need any more. Okay, let's have a look at our marketing <laughs> psychology facet today. Yep. The marshmallow test and weird people. Yeah, are you familiar with that acronym about weird? No. Research, it's weird. Um, it's interesting when it's been realised in recent years that a huge chunk of psychology research in the world is conducted with psychological or psychology professors, students. You know, because the average psychology professor needs to do research, who's a, you know, and then they look and find, well, I've got a whole lot of students here. Yeah. I'll do the research on them. And these students are weird, and, and it's the acronym it stands for White Educated. Um, Oh, I wrote it down. White educated, I oh, don't know, white or western, yeah. white eastern. Um, oh, of course. Developed, developed, and so forth. It's basically you talk about your white, your white students in western democratic countries. Mm-hmm. You know, you, 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 New Zealand, your, your America, your all these sorts of people. And and this come through here with this marshmallow test. Have you probably heard about it? This test it's quite famous. It's where um, you give little kids a marshmallow and you say you can eat it now or you can wait a few minutes. And if you haven't eaten it in a few minutes, then you can have two marshmallows. Right. And this particular research found out that um, the kids who who are happy to wait um, a bit of time and then get two marshmallows. When you track them later in life, they were the ones that were doing better on a whole lot of metrics because wow. they proven that they had self-control and they could defer gratification and that's a good indicator of life success. And some people have been going back and looking at this 
in recent years are looking at that particular project and looking at other projects and have been finding, well, yes, there is a correlation, but there are other correlations that are much stronger. And it's interesting, this is why I've been back and looked at all these kids, because these kids that were researched, they were in the, the, the crash and the childcare centre of Stanford University. So it's interesting, this professor, he couldn't go to the students and do the tests for them, but he went to the children of a lot of these students that were being left in the Stanford University childcare. And so he thought, well, let's go and have a look at their parents, because some of their parents went on and graduated and went on other things, and some of them actually just dropped out. And they weren't able to to um, to graduate. And generally, if you haven't graduated from Stanford, you're going to have a lower lower level of um of business and education or rest of it. And what they did find basically was that, funnily enough, the children who are most likely to succeed in life now this is this is shocking. They're the ones that come from wealthier, more educated parents. Right. Shocking, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's much more of a predictor. So it was interesting that the, yeah, it was if, if the kid had. Um, grabbed the marshmallow straight up and then hadn't had this, the um, benefits of life and hadn't succeeded as well, chances are that kid's parent was going to be a parent that dropped out of university anyway and went along with life and didn't have all the education. So, yeah, it's, that, again, just, just pulling, pulling the lid off the, these myths and going, well, it's not what everybody was. Okay, a bias selection sample, I think is what we call it, don't, don't we? Uh, well, a lot of the researchers, well, not so much bias, but probably biased interpretation. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Jonathan Dodd, Research Director at Ipsos, thank you very much. And we'll talk again next week. Cheers. Thanks, Rob. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intends. A new publication out. You'll spot it in the bookstores. It's a big thing. Big hardback. Big fat hardback. Fight for the forests. The pivotal campaigns that save New Zealand's native forests. Uh, good guide about what the book is like. I'll just drop it on the desk. Yeah, it's one of those <laughs> big, heavy ones. Um, laughing in the background, the author, Paul Bensiman. Uh, thank you very much for being with us, and thanks for the book. Okay, no problem. All right. I reckon, people, you might want to pick this up just out of a gesture of gratitude for what an amazing amount of uh, dedicated campaigners, so much hard work, sitting up trees and things like that, uh, activists, bloody communist hippies, probably. <laughs> um, but if you go to the Furunaki Forest or the Puriora, um, at some of the most amazing places on this planet, uh, you do need uh, to give a little bit of gratitude for the fact that they are there to these people and these campaigners. Uh, so, Paul, I say thank you. You were part of this. Yeah, I was a very small part of it, but I also wanted to praise these unsung heroes, um, like you say, the people who set up trees and made uh, roadblocks and lobbied. Yeah, uh, this is something we take for granted now, isn't it? The attitudes have yeah, changed yeah. so substantially. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, who would have thought a few decades ago we'd be giving incentives for planting native trees like the announcement today? Yeah. Okay. And this did happen around some pivotal decades. We're talking really about the mid-70s through to, uh, you know, the, the heat of the campaign in the mid-80s, right? Yeah, yeah, right through until the end of the, the Treaty of Century, Graham, really. And uh, and finally the pressure was too much and uh, 
the Helen Clark government with the Alliance and Greens said um, enough's enough and we'll save what we've got left. And the Forest Council uh, and the Wildlife Fund, it turned into the Department of Conservation. Yeah, the Forest Service, the old Forest Service and the, the Lands and Surveys Department. Um, it's amazing what these young conservationists, actually most of them were young, you know, the people up on the trees at, in Pudiota Forest in the central North Island, they were uh, schoolboys and schoolgirls, actually. Yeah. And uh, it, it's absolutely, they were extremely brave. I mean, they risked their life, yeah. um, lives. And um, it's amazing what they achieved. And, and we had the second generation in the late 1990s in the trees in Charleston. And they were in their young 20s, most of them, mm. a few teenagers. And they were up the trees again. And they, and they made the, the final um, difference. Yeah, it is amazing to think what the attitudes were like at the time. Let's chop these buggers down. Uh, it, yep. There was a great enthusiasm for it, wasn't there? Well, it was almost like um, uh, it was almost a hatred for anything indigenous. Um, you know, the, even after the Second World War, there was like a second uh, wave of colonialism, and these foresters had come back from the war. They wanted to turn New Zealand into another Europe. Um, uh, with woodland trees and anything indigenous on the lowlands was was going to go. And it's not just the trees either. I mean, it's much better appreciated today that it's an entire suite of biodiversity that is all intricately linked together. That's right. And these foresters, they couldn't see the... <laughs> they couldn't see the the trees and the birds. They could see the forests and the, and the income from them and they wanted to de- develop everything. It, it's, um, I mean... At the time of the Pudiota treetop protest in 1978, um, most people had never heard of the Korkakal, the beautiful, one of the most beautiful uh, sounding birds in New Zealand. The, the bird call is incredible. Um, and the gongs and what have you, it, it's just absolutely incredible, the, the Korkakal. And we nearly lost it mm. because people didn't know it existed and the Forest Service was keeping it secret. Yeah. Um, and also quite surprising what so many of our native trees that were milled were used for. There's a photograph in this book of a mountain of beech tree chips. They just yeah. ground them up and stuck them on a boat to send them to do what? Well, be made into cardboard, basically. And uh, and huge areas of the South Island, inland Nelson and the West Coast and Southland, were being clear-felled under subsidies um, from the Rural Bank, so the farmers were subsidised to cut these trees down, and, the, and also there were other subsidies to replace native trees with pines. Mm. OK, uh, when you think about it, just have a look at a map of New Zealand. Uh, to our eternal shame, this will be a surprise, Japan has more uh, native forest than New Zealand. Well, it's protected about 67%. Yeah. And, and we're protected about 23%. I think Australia's about 21%, but Australia, to my horror, when I was researching, um, is still clear-felling at a huge rate. I mean, Queensland, 1,000 rugby fields of trees a day in Queensland being chopped down wow. um, to turn into agriculture. It's the same as... They're cutting at the same rate as the Amazon rainforest has been cut in Brazil. Well, we had great enthusiasm to do the same thing. When you have a look at the amount of lowland mixed yeah. potter carp forest, 
Now, I'm not being too picky here. This is the sort of forest that was swathing through the Waikato. Um, today, there is just so little of it left. I think it was Stephen King that told me it's about the size of um, Cornwall the Park lake. in Auckland. Is oh, the, okay. Yeah. Oh, the best of it, yeah. Yeah. Well, basically, we're talking the Furunaki and that little valley. Yeah. And and in the you know on the west um, west side of Lake Taupo, from Tongariro up to the west side of Lake Taupo, after the Second World War, there was a hundred thousand hectares, and the the state, the Forest Service, went in and and cut it just about all down, eighty three percent. So when we were fighting the Pudiota battle, and I was up there, I wasn't up in the trees, but I was I was up there for it on um, liaison with the workers. We were fighting for the last 17,000 hectares. Mm. The other 80,000, 83,000 hectares had gone since the Second World War. Mm. Selective logging was some sort of um, assuagement, shall we say? Oh, that'll be yeah. all right, just selective logging. We can make, why not take them out of the forest and they'll regrow? What was the argument against that? The argument against it was that the Forest Service couldn't be trusted. Um, they basically still built roads in. This happened, well, and Timberlands, the same. They, they cleared huge areas, they built roads in. It wasn't plucking single trees out of the forest. Um, it would have, would have been great if they had have done that. Um, but they didn't. And also, the problem is they went into the, the most ecologically sensitive forests to do the selective logging, mm. which meant meant that um, species like the kōkako, which needed really dense bush because it couldn't fly very well, mm. um, they were threatened even, even by selective logging. Okay. Uh, some of the luminaries from this time, as you say, they were kids, but they were on a mission. The names that have uh, resonated through today, uh, Guy Salmon, Department yep. of Conservation, uh, Kevin Hackwell, Forest and Bird. Um, it, the, it does feel a bit like redemption, I suppose. Yes, I think these people and, and also, let's not forget the young woman who actually were the hardest to interview in this book because um, many of them don't have much of an ego and downplayed their role, but they, these young women on the West Coast were the staunchest up in the trees. Yeah. And at Pudiota Forest, there was a young woman called um, Rosalind Darby who was the only one who stayed up in the trees at night time. I didn't know that until huh. I started the research. Right. And these, these young women, they're not household um, names, um, and their story hasn't been told before. Well, it has now. Um, yeah. With some yeah. amazing photographs. It was nice to see Kevin Hatwell jumping up and down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's a hard guy. Yeah, isn't he? But he's also told me that this was very nasty, the Puriora campaign. Um, they would, you know, they did risk their lives on some occasions. And yes, there, was, yes. uh, there was a lot of anger towards these people, mucking up the, the opportunity to make a living basically so that really it was heated and it got pretty nasty didn't it it got really nasty um but when you look at it from an international perspective um there weren't lives lost uh, there was a bit of um pushing and shoving and and what have you and certainly i i 
I saw some very tense moments on the West Coast and public halls and what have you. Um, and there was property lost and stolen and um, uh, like one guy had his, the front of his property, a, a coaster who was supportive of the protesters, he had, his, he had the front of his property um, sprayed, um, all his plants and trees and actually some young podocarps were poisoned um, because of his support. Compared to what's happened overseas with people getting beaten up in Australia and, and in tropical forest um, protests recently, um, people disappearing, you know, and yeah. in Brazil at the same time, yeah. Yeah. How, how were the death threats at the time? Um, yeah, there yeah, there were yeah, there'd been death threats, but um, they were fairly empty um, threats, I think. But one of the, the things about New Zealand that... Because we're a small country and, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of networking and you, you know um, the various families and uh, what have you um, that you're up against. Um, it, it was a case of, you know, um, like Helen Clark says in her foreword for the book, um, political lobbying always paralleled protest. So there was always, always... Um, efforts made to talk with the other side and that and the other side listened you know they even though like absolutely amazing at to the order the 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 workers um hosted us on the MRI at Mangakino right during the protest we, we had meetings with them and um they were uh, they walked out of the forest in the end wow. uh, they lost their they lost their jobs they um, the workers, the 32 families in the Sawmilling village of Barryville, they got a total of 130,000. That's total for the whole 32 families in compensation. Oh, good God. The, saw, the, the sawmilling companies, you know, the, we're talking about the um, companies owned by the Carters and the Fletchers, they got over $7 million in compensation from the government. Uh, it doesn't seem equitable. Uh, equitable. No. Anyway. <laughs> no. A big factor. A big factor in the turnaround from um, whatever prevailing attitude there was that you're a bunch of communist happy upsetters um, yeah. was support from academics. Like it yeah. or not, it really made a difference. People listened. I'm thinking of people like John Morton and his publication, a landmark thing that brought a lot of attention to the Furunaki. And Alan Mark. Yes, Alan Mark, of course. Oh, yeah. Sir Alan Mark. Yeah, that's right. And But also um, the young scientists who actually gave up their careers or put them on hold to work full-time on the on the cause um, behind the scenes. And, you know, I named some of them. Um, but you're right, the, the movers and, and shakers and Sir Edmund Hillary getting involved in the Native Forest Restoration Trust, mm. names like that, had a huge influence. All right. Um, today it must have been more than disappointing uh, to to find out that there was going to be selective logging in Westland again to, after a storm. You know, they thought, well, they've fallen down, stuff it, we can bring them out and sell them as a prestige timber. And that was just a few years ago, right? Yes, yes. So, I mean, again, like I was saying before, it's not a case of um, hovering by helicopter and plucking each one out carefully. It's a case of building roads in. Um, 
So, yeah, the, the forest is again being compromised, but on a much smaller scale, of course. Yeah, but the fact that it's thought of as productive and there's still that lack of knowledge of how it's all... I, I, I think it's a criminal lack of knowledge, actually. I'll just, um, be straight up that it's all linked together. Where do kaka nest? Old dead yeah, trees. It, exactly, yeah. It, yeah. And their food's in dead trees too. Yeah. 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 Um, um, but, but there's also, I mean, um, we need to do more in New Zealand with pest control and, and we're gradually putting more money into that. But New Zealand can't be too smug like you're implying, we can't be too smug about what we achieved. And it was a great achievement, actually, stopping with all the pressures, stopping the logging of our native forest. But we're still importing quila, um, which is a tropical hardwood from the island of Papua. Uh, it's clear felling's going on there at a rapid rate. It's corrupt. We've got big Asian um, uh, uh, corporates who are going in there with the military, kicking off the local villages, um, it's destroying the habitat of tree kangaroos and birds of paradise and what have you, and planting um, palm oil plantations. We're one of the biggest importers of palm kernel in the world. Um, uh, we take about a third of the world's supply for our dairy farmers, and, and we're still importing aquila, which is not a plantation timber. It's... It, being um, it chopped down at a rapid rate in, in Papua. And, I mean, I, I did a big story for the um, the New Zealand Herald a few years ago, um, uh, about three years ago, about the fact that uh, we were paying um, for training for the their police force while they were doing all this. And so, um, you know, we can't be too smug <laughs> yeah, a... about what we've done with our... Um, saving our own native forests. Yeah, yeah, I feel pretty good about not in my backyard sort of thing, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, you're going to go and set up a tree in Papua New Guinea? <laughs> you won't get very far. <laughs> or West Papua, it's even worse because the Indonesians have taken it over. Right, right. Okay. Um, your favourite places to visit then and just contemplate the achievements that have been made? Certainly up the treetop platform in, um, in Pūrua Forest. I did that several times during the, the three years I worked on this book. And um, the dockers built quite an incredible tower right in the forest. It's a little bit hard to find, but you're, you're right in the canopy and the amazing um, sight in the North Island. You don't see this very often in the North Island. Flocks of parakeets, kākāriki, kākās going over screeching. Um, you know, all kinds of all kinds of bird life there, and to sort of sit up there and uh, have lunch and contemplate. And I was trying to work out where the the platforms were um, when we were there in 1978. But, but but what a great feeling to be up there and realise that the protests um, saved the forest. Yeah. Uh, but but also also down in South Westland, and you, with my daughter, um, walking up to the Okarito uh, Trig, and um, surveying the forest around us, which, and that was one of the, the first big campaigns for the new group, the Native Forest Action Council, because forest and bird was basically dormant. They woke up for the Manapuri campaign and then went back to sleep. 
um, when the beach scheme and industrial logging was starting. So this new group, the Native Forest Action, Action Council, um, it was campaigning to save those beautiful virgin forests which went right from the sea right up into the mountains. And um, again, that was a great feeling of, of achievement um, to see those forests of South Westland and that are now part of this uh, World Heritage area which should actually be better promoted. Mm. Yeah, and I concur with that Puriora platform. It is a thing. You go up there, you will see things. It's just amazing. There's a, a gaggle of kaka uh, all behaving like a troop of chimpanzees, actually. <laughs> just marvellous. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Go there at once, New Zealanders, and tip, tip the hat to these people who fought for it. And as I suggested, maybe even a gesture. Uh, you could buy the book. Fight for the Forests, beautiful, big, fat coffee table job, I think is what you'd call it. The pivotal campaigns that saved New Zealand's native forests. And you'll see a lot of people in there that are still active in conservation today, but looking much, much younger. <laughs> <laughs> Including me. <laughs> Paul Bensonman, thank you very much and all the best for the future. Thank you. Zealand is yours. Go there now. Just wandering round, I came up with a question and thought, okay, I'm going to abuse my position on radio to find out the answer. You know, mainly because I think I might not be the only one who's thinking it. What am I wondering about? I can see Pahutakawa flowering at the moment. What a glorious sight. Uh, the signifier very much of Christmas uh, on the horizon. But then... Right next to one Pahutakawa, there's another Pahutakawa, and it's doing nothing. It's sitting on its ass and not flowering. Why does one flower and the other not? And these weird variegated facets. You get a whole branch of variegated leaves. And that bit's not flowering on one, and the other bits are. Okay, what's going on? Why don't these Pahutakawa behave themselves? The man who's written the book on Pahutakawa, Metrociterus excelsa, and part of the amazing Project Crimson for the last 28 years, recently retired, Gordon Hosking. Hello. Oh, hi, Karim. How are you? I'm confused. I want to know an answer yeah. to this thing. What is going on with these Pahutakawa? Have you noticed this? Yeah, of course I noticed this. Yeah, I give you a bit of an answer, but it's not probably the perfect one you're looking for. All right, well, <laughs> knock yourself out. Yeah, well, the, um, the, on the end of every shoot on a Pudikawa tree, there's a, a pair of buds. And these buds either turn into a flower or yeah. they turn into leaves. And, of course, you know, trees that uh, trees can't flower all the time. They've got to put on leaves as well because the leaves only last about two to three years on a Pudikawa, so they've got to replace them. Yeah. So what usually happens is that a tree will flower quite heavily one year and then the next year, it'll put on uh, foliage. And, and of course, parts of the tree may flower really heavily one year, and another part of it may put on foliage. So they, they're really quite very variable, but you can guarantee that the same part of the tree will not flower heavily every year. Ah, oh, they take it in turns. They do, more or less, yep, yep. Okay, and it doesn't, one tree might be right next to the other. and Absolutely, yep. Is there anything to do with temperature gradients or things like that? Well, we, we don't really know what switches these buds to either flower or to, or to produce leaves, but it probably happens, you know, months beforehand. Right. You know, you may get some particular weather climatic events that uh, the tree 
a lot of trees will flower up in when they're under stress. So if you get a bit of a drought period, often the tree says, whoops, I've got to make some seeds. I've got to survive here somehow, but I might, I might die from uh, lack of water. Oh, yeah. So it'll often flower. And uh, but this may may be triggered, you know, months before when you actually see the flowers on the tree. I see. Okay. And these variegated branches on one tree, you can get these variegated things. And yeah. what's going on there? Well, it's just a, just a bit of a genetic mutation, really, and you know, that just has happened in one like maybe on one set of buds on one particular tree, and it's grown out as a, as a variegated branch, but it doesn't affect the rest of the tree. All right. It's not very co- not very common actually, but you know you do see it occasionally. Do you see it in the wild? Yeah, you will do. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And Pahutakawa, their natural range. If you see one in the South Island, somebody's planted it, right? Yeah, they've been planted everywhere, all the way down to Invercargill. <laughs> but just, they only occur if you draw a line roughly a bit uh, bit north of New Plymouth, across to um, perhaps Gisborne. North of that is more or less the natural range. Okay. Followed the fins of the fish up. Yeah, pretty well. Okay, so that's the natural range. A natural range, yeah. But, but you know, they grow so well. I mean, if you live in Wellington, you know, Pudicar was everywhere. Yeah. They're a very robust tree, so, of course, people planted them for all sorts of reasons. They're a great drain blocker, aren't they? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just while I've got you, Mr. Project Crimson, the rata, um, do they flower all at once all over the country or do they start in the north and go south? Well, they they are pretty. They can be variable too, and, yeah, they probably do flower earlier in the North Island than the south. They're also later than Putakawa, you know. Putakawa actually this year in Northland here where I am, yeah. looks as though it's going to be a bit later than normal. It's oh, really? started by now and actually hardly any trees up here are out yet. So, because it's always, you know, they talk about being the Christmas tree, but it's usually all over by Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> which is a pity. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but rath is probably into February before you actually see large areas of rather flowering. Oh, okay. Where, where are you up north, Gordon? Well, I'm at, um, at uh, Maui. Oh, Mungawai. East Coast, yeah. yeah. Oh, lovely. Excellent. It's yep. a nice spot. Lots of car up here. Yeah, good one. Well, thank yeah. you for all your work with Project Crimson and yeah. uh, over the years. But um, I'm sorry to leave it on a gloomy note, but myrtle rust, what a hellish thing that will yeah. be if it takes off. Are you worried? Yeah, well, we, we couldn't help but be worried, you know, but um, I'm, I'm optimistic. Um, so far, you know, it hasn't shown up as being a, a severe problem with Putakawa. And, but we'll know a lot more, I guess, after this growing season when it's spread around a bit more and a bit more around. But I'm, to my personal feeling is I'm, I'm relatively optimistic. It'll no doubt have some impact, but yeah. I don't think we're going to see dead Pudicara everywhere, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah, because but, the lesson um, learned from Australia isn't, uh, isn't a pretty one, is it? I mean, they're in big not, trouble. No. That's right. That's right. Mm. Gordon, have a great time up north this summer, and thank you very much for answering yeah, the no question problem. about Pudicara. Good as God. Thanks a lot, eh? Cheers. Yeah, good for you. Over. Ah, weekend variety. Wireless. The Keraru, or Kukupa, or is it? Oh, New Zealand wood pigeon, uh, got the bird of the year this year. There's a parallel for our plant species. And that's, of course, unsurprisingly, it's called Plant of the Year. And it's run by the fabulous outfit called the New Zealand Plant Conservation Network. Voting's been going for a month. Maybe you voted. I did. I voted for um, uh, the tree nettle, which is probably our most armed plant. It actually killed someone once um, from the New Zealand Plant Conservation Network, who happens to be in the bush at the moment. 
um, for the results. Voting was throughout November. Today, December the 1st, so the results are out for our plant of the year. Matt Ward in the bush. G'day. Hey, how you going? Go. Tell me, where are you? Um, I'm in the Hemi Martinga um, Reserve in or northern Waikanae, so oh. we're sort of, it's like a foothill. It's um beautiful koei remnant, and um, it's got a lovely track, and I'm just uh, doing a bit of hiking with my uncle and auntie. Nice. And uh, you'll see a few seed pods on the koei Yep, yep. It's all um, showing good pathology at the moment. It's looking like it's going to be another uh, extremely, well, what would I say, plentiful year. Okay, good one. Because it's actually mm. a, quite a sign, isn't it, that the koi have uh, flowers and seed pods that go to fruiting because, you know, rats love them. Indeed. Yeah. It's a, um, that, that's one of those um, tropical sort of hang-ons that we've got in some of our species, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Beautiful, beautiful tree. Okay. Um, I wonder if it came in the top ten. Let's find out. Let's start at number ten, Matt. Um, number ten, we've got Discaria tomato which is the wild Irishman, as it's known, the prickliest member of our plant family from down south. Oh, lovely. And uh, beautiful scented flowers, is it not? It does, actually. It's, it's, <laughs> when you, they're only little, but they, um, they smell beautiful, and um, you just got to watch yourself when you're going for a smell because <laughs> yeah. you get yourself a piercing without realising. I bet if you grew up in central Otago, it would be the smell of your youth, wouldn't it? You'd remember it. it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, number nine. Number nine, um, Four Nights Lily, the Xeranoma Castelmom yep. F. Bractose Bractiosa. Oh, that's a great title. <laughs> Massive red flower, uh, only found on islands off the coast of New Zealand, but in lots of garden shops too, because it's a spectacular thing. It is, and very, very difficult to get to bloom or see in bloom at home. You've got to they're one of those plants that, because they where they grow naturally, they're sort of in crevices and stuff. So they have, um, you know, they're always fighting to survive. And basically, that that sort of struggle means they'll flower because they're not getting many, not, not much, much liquid and stuff. So to get them to flower at home, you've got to um, keep the roots very, very much um, constricted, like yeah. with rocks or what have you. Otherwise, they'll just be a, a leafy thing all, all the time and you'll never see them flower in your lifetime. Yeah, loves bird shit too. Okay, uh, next, number whatever it is, eight. Number eight. eight, number eight, yep, Kamakelia, um, Uh This is a, a southern broom um, from around Marlborough Way. Not many people would have probably ever actually seen it. I haven't in the world. I've seen it in um, uh, botanical gardens, but yeah. that's about it. And Beautiful. massive pink flowers, or purpley flowers, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yet again, really, really great perfume. Yeah. Lovely. Uh-huh. Okay, number seven. Number seven, as we were talking of before, Dice Island Speak the Bile. Koe Koe. Koe Koe, yeah. My headphones fell off. There we go. <laughs> that's, that's obviously some excitement there. Yeah, <laughs> fell off my chair. Um, okay, we've heard about that. That's lovely. Next. Number six. Yeah. Uh, a northern manuka, Leptospermum scoparium variant in Carnum. Now, that's the, the pink-flowered um, manuka from up the far north. Anyone who's been up there, they would have seen it. And, um, you know, much bigger flowers than our, the, the more common uh, manuka. Yeah. And, yeah, beautiful. beautiful and, plant. yeah, it's in the target for myrtle rust, we'll see. Yes, unfortunately. Okay, number six. Number six. Oh, that was number six, sorry. sorry. Uh, number five, yeah. we've got 
Fuchsia excorticata. Oh. Patukutuku. Gorgeous plant. Yeah. Um, almost re- sort of burnt orange bark, and you see them in the dense, dense, moist forest. They can get massive, can't they? They can indeed, and they'll fall over and then sort of pop back up, and yeah. branches will break off, and they'll they'll root to the ground and take hold. Oh, it's an amazing plant, actually. It's a, and like you say, only found in moist areas. Yeah, and lovely little Christmas tree decoration flowers. Oh, they're gorgeous. Yeah. You know, multicoloured, what, yeah. purple, pink, yellow, um, and probably the only, I think, actually, yeah, the only plant in New Zealand with blue pollen. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Far out. And the berries are quite nice, too. They're tasty. Yeah, yeah. I've eaten a few of them. Um, they're beautiful. And they've got really, really microscopic seeds. So, um, you know, Good, they, don't, they don't seem to, you know, for how many seeds are in that fruit, you don't seem to get that many pop out of them. So, yeah, yeah unusual. Oh, crikey, we've got the news coming at us at the speed of light. Uh, number four. <laughs> number four. Urtic syrup, you mentioned it earlier. Oh. Tree nettle. Tre- yeah, it's just bristling with armaments. Uh, I give myself a sting every now and again. Uh, you, the effects can last up to a week. It's quite fun. Uh, yeah. I actually think the European nettle is more annoying because you can uh, escape the missiles by because they're so big um, by touching them elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, and that's um, the food source for Admiral Butterflies. Yes, indeed, and they actually they'll um, lay eggs, and the caterpillars will survive on there quite happily. Yeah, it's a beautiful plant, really. Okay, number three. Number three, Lophomyrtus gelata, Rama Rama, ah. um, early leader, and then uh, fell off towards the end. Okay, uh, very popular in gardens because it's got that lumpy leaf, and maybe very susceptible to myrtle rust. We shall see. Number two. Yeah, yeah. Number two, Mullenbeckia estonii. Whoa. Uh, the lovely, and, and anywhere in Wellington, you'll see it on road islands. It's used to pushing cars from hitting each other. But um, in the wild, very rare, and it was in the news this year uh, down in Christchurch for a supposedly uh, unassuming farmer cutting down a third of the, the known population. Yeah, one-third of its population in the wild. Far out. Ah, yeah. Terrible. Okay, number whatever it is. Number one. Oh, number one, we're up to number roll, please. Sorry. <laughs> For the first time ever, we've got an orchid winning. Caladenia alata. <laughs> a Caladenia orchid, did you say? Yes. So this is a, 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 a amazing height of all of 100 mils. So they're tiny in height and the, the flower is 10 mils across. Um, under a microscope or looking through your macro lens on your camera, gorgeous, but so easy to miss and not see in the wild. Um, spectacular. Yeah. Our orchids small but perfectly formed some of them are just so beautiful it's just amazing yeah they are they really are and you know they're just so microscopic they get no no kudos and this is the first time an orchid's ever won so yeah cool yeah yeah good one and that beautiful perching orchid the um easter orchid um arena autumn nalis um that pong of marzipan and long drop in the bush it's just (laughs) neat isn't it (laughs) <laughs> yep, that's, um, we've discussed this before, and I couldn't. Yeah, that, that sums it sums up the smell quite well. Actually, it is one of those nice but somewhat offending smells. Yeah, like if you made a Christmas cake in the toilet <laughs> <laughs> with a bit of Jay's fluid. <laughs> no, it's a lovely yeah. smell. I, it's not. It's, that's not fair. But it's 
reasonably <laughs> accurate. Okay, uh, Matt Ward, uh, who happens to be Captain Orchid, you'd be thrilled with the uh, the Orchid coming number one. So I suppose congratulations and also thanks very much for the lineup, Plant of the Year, NZPCN. Go look them up. It's the best website for New Zealand plants and the amount of work that goes into it is awesome. So thank you from us.